welcome to Mojo for the Modern Man. This is your host, Ken Mossman. And today I'm joined by Michael Seaver for Act One of our conversation. And Michael opens Act One with stories from his childhood, of course. And he grew up in a small town in Michigan where his life largely revolved around the family business. And he talks about those early years saying, you know, I'll never forget those days of never feeling heard or understood for who I was or who I am today. I always felt emotionally abandoned. That's kind of a heavy way to start, but stay tuned. At 18, Michael began to realize that his place in the world was really outside of Michigan, and he muses on the importance of that revelation, describing it as a torrent that was building first a stream, then a river, powerful enough to thrust him into pursuing his degree, push him through a divorce, and finally wash him up on the banks of freedom. And with freedom came growth, stillness, and reflection. And there's a skill set in all that that's vital in a culture, according to Michael, that's, that's vital in a culture that moves too quickly for its own good. Michael riffs on how these skills, coupled with his experience in the family business, shaped how he approaches service his relation and his relationships. But it wasn't really until age 29 that Michael knew how he wanted to use his skills. He's one of the lucky few who really discover at such a young age their true calling. And of course, it wasn't without help. That's a theme you might notice that often shows up here on Mojo for the Modern Man. No man does it alone. Uh, so it wasn't without help. And he recounts his experiences with Pam, his career coach, who really helped to set him on his path. And we wrap up Act One with Michael discussing finding his purpose in life which is to unlock the potential of others. There's a whole lot to this, of course, as there always is. Quick reminder, if you have not yet, please subscribe to Mojo for the Modern Man on your favorite podcasting service. And with that, let's dive into this great conversation with Michael Seaver. Enjoy. Hello, welcome to Mojo for the Modern Man and welcome Michael S. Seaver. It's great to have you here this morning. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very, very grateful to be here with you. Yeah, looking forward to a great conversation. But let's start here. What was it like growing up in your part of the world? Oh, my gosh. I have many stories to tell you, Ken. Uh, please, so, please. <laughs> uh, I was raised in a very small town in the western part of Michigan, a town of 2,500 people that predominantly looked uh, like me. My family since 1953 has had a landscaping, law maintenance, and snow plowing business. So at the age of 12, I was required to start working full-time within the business after school and during the summer months. And inside of that, there were many blessings that came from working inside the family business, learning the values of hard work, really understanding the values of customer service, and being able to truly anticipate someone else's needs, like really pay attention to those details to make sure you're providing that high level of service. As time passed and progressed, my family was able to develop a little bit of wealth, and, and that was nice, too, to have a little bit of freedom for travel and things along those lines. But the thing that I want to bring up here that I think is really important is that there's always the yin and the yang energy associated with those positive blessings. And the hardships for me were very profound in my younger years, not so much physical, but quite emotional. And I was raised uh, in that small town on a farm, didn't have a lot of friends around. And so it was a very insular, it was a very uh, small place. And the thing that I remember most are the feelings of emotional abandonment. Uh, 
right? And and that was the thing that was really big and important for me was that my dad was always working. My mom, you know, had her thing that she was doing. And I'll never forget those days of never feeling heard or understood for who I was or am today. And so I always felt emotionally abandoned. I always felt like I was a robot inside the family business. And I always felt like much of my life was prescribed for me. And what I love about your message, Ken, is that you talk about you're in this place that you know today that love isn't earned through hard work. But I know unequivocally the exact same thing because that's what I was taught. I was taught that if I made the family business money, that I would then receive some sort of gift in return. So my dad's love language was receiving gifts. Mine was words of affirmations. And so we never got along. He didn't say that he loved me until I was age 21. And so being in this environment of having access to really significant wealth and possibility and opportunity and to have the stature in the small community, what people didn't see behind the scenes was those feelings of wonderment and abandonment and not being able to be my authentic self, right? It was a very, very uh, profound journey. Yeah, I want to pause you there, Michael, because um, I, I'm curious about when, you know, when in your in your childhood, maybe your tween years, teen years, it sounds like it sounds like it was relatively early on where you had this, you know, began to notice like, huh, okay, I'm not, I'm not being seen, I'm not, I'm not being received as uh, as who I really am. Yeah, when did that? When did that? When did you begin to notice that? Uh, a a Reiki master told me that it started at age six, and and so I was having a session with the Reiki master a few years back in 2017, and she said you really need to explore the events of your life at age six, and so consciously I was not aware of what was going on at that particular time, but there was a lot of infighting in my parents' marriage, and I was unconsciously picking up on those things, and that kind of cemented or planted some of the mindsets that I had later. So working at the age of 12, I started to become more conscious of the lifestyle that my dad and my grandfather were leading, and I think it hit me hardest at age 15 because my father said the words, you've become the son that I had always wanted because you've worked so much and really helped our family out in the way that you did. This is what your grandfather said to you. This wasn't what you overheard him saying to your father, who was actually his son. Correct. Yeah. So it was, yeah. So it was a, it was a really important moment in time to at age six, have kind of the, the the subconscious ideas planted that there was always going to be this divisiveness, but then starting at age 12 to work, starting then into age 15 to start to have these realizations about my life is going to continue to go down this path where I'm only valued if I work hard and make someone else money. That was a very, very big realization. And that hit right there because of what they said, right? We're, we're very proud of you for the man that you become because you've become this great continuer of the business, which was a very kind thing for them to say, but it was also a really hard thing for me to absorb because I didn't want to be known as that. Yeah. I wanted to be authentic in myself. How much at, at, at that you know, at that tender age of 15, when let's face it, we all know exactly what we want to do with the rest <laughs> of our lives. Um, <laughs> uh, 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 you know, hearing that as a 15 year old, you know, what, how much did you know that maybe the family business was not necessarily the direction you imagined yourself going in? 
it was a it was an inkling, right? It was just the beginning of the stream at that point because I didn't know anything different. We hadn't right. yet traveled outside of Michigan. We hadn't yet experienced other places. So the stream started to become a creek and then it started to become a river in my late teenage years when after I graduated high school, my parents bought me a trip to Scotland to then play golf in a Ryder Cup style match against people from Britain. And that's when it really struck me that the small town life that I was leading, basically between age 12 and 18, that I knew as soon as I landed in Scotland and I started to be on like St. Andrews and these wonderful golf courses, I said, no, it's time. I definitely need to do something bigger. So it was a creek and then it was like this bigger river and then it became like this massive flowing, you know, like waterfall. It's like, okay, it's time. I need to do something else. Uh, before we get into the into the in, into the water that was in the the creek and then the brook and then the you know bubbling and then the waterfall, um, I, I I take it you didn't just find yourself in Scotland playing golf uh, as as a as a new golf player. So when were you introduced to the to the game? So uh, my parents, my dad plays the game left-handed. My my mom plays the the game right-handed. So at age eight. I went to the golf course with them because they used to play quite a bit when they were younger and I would play. I was ambidextrous at that point in my life. I could play either way. But then I think I was about age 13 that my father, uh, he just, he wanted a new set of irons. And so they ended up giving me his old ping irons. And so I, at that point, whatever point it was, I started to play golf left-handed consistently. And so in high school, I was a pretty good stick. I think my, my scoring average was 76 or 77. I, I could get around the course pretty well. And so that was part of the reason why I was accepted to be able to go into this program, to be able to play with kids from around the world in Britain. It was fascinating. Wow. And, and, and still, is it still something you do? Oh my gosh. Yes. You know, I'm 41 uh, now. And, you know, I, there have been pockets of time. I remember from about 2008 to 2018, I was in the process of getting a master's degree. I was building my business. I was, uh, you know, kind of becoming a part of a, a family to, um, you know, this girl, I'll call her my stepdaughter name's Aaliyah. And so I really wanted to be a big part of her life. And so there was a period of time where I didn't play quite as much, but then 2018, 2019, I really got back into it. And I realized how much I enjoyed the game for many, many reasons and purposes. So today, thankfully in North Carolina, I live an hour from Pinehurst and it's super easy to, to get down there and some other courses around here to just play golf. So I'm so thankful to have that still be a part of my life. Yeah, that's great. That's great. I, lo I love that you found this, this thing. I love that you found this thing that you love and now <laughs> yes. you get to do more of it in your new home. Yeah. Congratulations. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I have to ask you one more golf, golf question. Um, what is it about the game that so captures you? Mm. I am an introvert and I tend to learn through experience. And so I love to be alone. I love to reflect. I love to really compete against the person I was yesterday. I've never been a fan of team competitive sports. It's just never really been an interest to me. So there's something about golf, which is you're only competing against yourself. And the golf course just happens to be the mode by which you're doing that. There's something about the integrity of the game. That's really interesting and meaningful for me. There's something about the challenge of it. Like every day is different, right? You don't bring the same swing to the golf course every day. There's something different. Sometimes your putting game is on. Sometimes your time off the tee is great, but I love that, that there's a challenge there. And I love that it's always about me competing against who I was yesterday. That is something that's really important to me. I don't like to compare myself to celebrities, politicians, athletes, any of those people on the outside world. I love to look at the progress and the growth that I'm making as I navigate life. 
So there was a period of time not too long ago, Ken, about three years ago, where my handicap was probably a 15 or 16. And more recently, I think it's a 3.6, 3.7, like I've gotten it back down quite a bit again. And that process of going from a higher handicap to a lower one was so enormously rewarding. I learned so much about myself. Give us a, you know, no, I can't leave that one just sitting on the table. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what did you learn? So for me, it I realized that there are metaphors that come from sporting activities. Like for you, it was being a ski instructor all those years ago. You know, for me, it's the game of golf. And what I realized is that there's an iterative process to getting better. And so when I when I was at the handicap of about 15, I realized that I needed to put myself through a multi-month process of learning, of saying, okay, I'm going to use this particular app to track where my miss hits are or the number of putts or the number of sand saves that I have. And so that I realized that if I collected the right data about myself going through this journey. And then if I practiced a certain amount of time each week, I could translate that data and that practice onto the golf course. Right. And I really could. And so I was able to adjust my mental models and my mindset by looking at the data, by practicing really intentionally, and then applying those same concepts on the course. And I think that there are metaphors metaphysically that really help us to say the same thing exists in life. If you focus on something and then you intentionally practice it, you can then get better in a very meaningful way in any area of your life. So I was constantly extrapolating not only the better part of me that was coming out as I was getting better at golf, but then I recognized I was becoming a better human at the same time. I do hope you're enjoying this conversation between myself and my guest, Michael Seaver. Quick reminder, if you have not yet, please subscribe to Mojo for the Modern Man on your favorite podcasting service. Let's dive back in. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Now, again, there's you're you're serving these things up on silver platters. Like <laughs> I know there's still the river and the brook and all that. We will get back to that, and maybe we can tie them together. But you know, when you say I became, you know, I was becoming a better human at the same time. Like, uh, uh, name a few ways. I realized that the more that I was still and that I was taking more time for reflection or really identifying the patterns in my life, that stillness and that reflection, and I'm a journaler, I love to journal, I journal every day. And that helped me because then I, what I started to recognize is that I was noticing patterns in the behaviors of people around me. And so I was able to offer a more broad perspective of what their life's journey is and to honor and respect that and to take on different perspectives. Like I used to think years and years ago, as a result of working in this family business, that my way was the right way, right? There was only one way to accomplish something. And what I've been realizing through building up a, a, a different level of competence inside my golf game and then applying that to my life is, is that I have become more still. I feel a deeper level of work-life integration because I can absorb and understand someone's perspective that's radically different from mine and still display a very strong level of love towards them, right? To honor their earth school curriculum, if you will, to honor their life's experiences and events. And so I'm glad that I've been able to use kind of the stillness and the reflection and the journaling to get to a deeper level of acceptance, not only of my journey, but also of those around me to just honor that they're doing the best they can. There's so much in what you've just said between the uh, the the fact that there are so many different perspectives there's there are so many different ways to accomplish the same thing and you know pointing out the 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 importance of of stillness and reflection and and also practices because in our you know a little bit of editorializing here 
but we live in uh, an extraordinary, an extraordinarily divided, extraordinarily divisive time right now. We're also, uh, and we've been this way for a while. We've been uh, a, a, an incredibly fast culture. You know, there's a, a high value placed on on speed. Probably paying lip service to efficiency, but that's about it, as far as I can tell. But there's something about the there's something wildly important about practices that slow us down and have us reflect. So, you know, what do you, you say a few words about, you know, and I know this is important to you as well. You've just shared it. Yeah. You know, what do you see as important about practices of, of, of slowing down and reflection? Yeah, it's, it's tremendously important, especially at this time in human history. And in your January 7th blog, uh, which was last week as we're recording this, you know, you talk about the value of getting to understand why things are the way they are. And I think that that's a really critical piece to, for everybody listening to understand is that when you slow down and you have those repeated practices daily or weekly, you get to root cause far more quickly. And so I spend 20 minutes every morning in meditation, right? I spend at least one day per week in nature, walking around or sitting there with nobody else around. And I do that intentionally because as we've learned from people like Dr. Bruce Lipton or Dr. Joe Dispenza, the earth, earth has what's called uh, Schumann resonance, right? Earth has a heartbeat and that exists at 7.83 Hertz, right? So earth is constantly vibrating. Now you can't see it with your eye, but it also happens that from the research, we know that the human body vibrates about the same Hertz, about eight Hertz, right? Different organs are a little different, but about the same. So by taking the time for stillness, you're actually going back to the way that nature made you to be. And now you're opening up your pineal gland to be able to receive the intuition, the epiphany, the things from God's source spirit that you need to know to connect the dots. But if you're constantly scrolling social media or you're constantly working or you're constantly paying attention to the mainstream media, you're not vibrating at eight hertz, right? You're not picking up those downloads or those epiphanies. And so the routines and habits that we have that get us back to the stillness get us in tune with nature in a very important way because then it allows for us to identify the patterns in our life that then allow for us to be much better at saying no to the things not meant to us, but yes to the things that are. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful. Uh, man, there's so much that I want to return to the water. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so let's let's put a pin in that for just uh, for, for a moment. I want to come back to, I want to come back to relationship with nature and 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 earth of course and um i also want to come back to your return to your story because you had mentioned you know the the creek that became this river that became this something much bigger and uh, if you could walk us through some of that some of your own process there i know you were much younger but take us through some of your own process because i think it it'll, it'll likely be instructive for more than one or two people yeah, so after that that point in time, um, probably at age 18, I came back from Scotland and I immediately went to a university that was about 45 minutes from my hometown. And that was a blessing and a curse at the same time because I was still in that same environment that was very small town mindset. You have to work in order to earn love. Uh, but thankfully, I, I met someone 
And at college, we ended up getting married in 2003, shortly after we finished our degrees. And the biggest, one of the biggest blessings of my life was when we decided to leave Michigan to move to Arizona in December of 2003. So my mindset in 2002, 2003 was roughly the same as it was as at age 18, right? I just hadn't had enough other experiences to really get to that point of the waterfall. So when I moved to Arizona, I worked at the Four Seasons Resort in North Scottsdale, and that made the waterfall, like I was right on the precipice of the waterfall at that point, because I'm interacting with guests from around the world, right? The Burt Reynolds, the, the Michael Dell, the Phil Mickelsons, you know, all these people, like I'm knowing these people on a regular basis, but I was also interacting with people from 13 or 14 different countries around the world. And that sparked something in my head that put me at the edge of the waterfall. And then two things happened on a weekend, Ken, that I think are really instructive that really pushed me into the waterfall, which was on a Friday afternoon, my wife at the time, she told me she was leaving me. She, she wanted a divorce. And it just so happened that the following Monday, so two days later, I was starting the MBA at the Thunderbird School of Global Management. So the waterfall was that weekend in August of 2008, because all of a sudden I was thrust into a territory where I didn't have any of the creature comforts that I was accustomed to from my family being in Michigan to my wife now leaving. I was going into a degree program where I had to take classes outside of the U.S. and I had to speak a second language proficiently just to graduate. And so I was thrust into the waterfall where I was hanging out with students from 50 different countries. As a Caucasian male, I was the minority amongst the student population. And that was the most transformative time of my life because prior to that, I never thought that me being a coach or a leadership coach or an executive coach or whatever those words are, I never thought that was possible. But my life's purpose was displayed to me when I was in the middle of the waterfall at Thunderbird. Right? I had to slowly work over a long period of time, basically 10 or 12 years, to get to that point of understanding what my life's purpose was going to be. And it didn't hit me until I was age 29. It took a long while. Which in, uh, I, I don't know about you with your own work with your clients, but certainly uh, in, in, in my work, boy, if you, I, I'm, uh, I'm massively jealous of anyone who has a clear idea or had a clear idea of their life purpose at age 29 <laughs> <laughs> sometimes it happens later right yeah 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 and how much and and and, and i'm i'm uh, how much um how much of of the of the purpose in terms of the language the sense of it all of that um uh, uh stuck versus how much has shifted and fine-tuned in the course of the years. Oh man, over you know since 2009, so we're about 12, 13 years later, there has been enormous evolution and iteration. And I'll explain what I mean by that, is that when I was a first year student, we were all given a career coach and mine was a lady named Pam. Pam gave me a battery of assessments and asked me a series of questions. And she was able to sense and understand that my life's purpose, the way that my disc style, my strengths finder, career leader, my core values, the way that they all came together was that I was supposed to be in leadership development. And at first, I rejected that idea. I did not feel that that was appropriate for me because it was so radically different from anything I had done before. But she convinced me in my the first semester of 2009, so my second year, she said, I want you to serve as a career coach to first-year students. And after doing that for a couple of weeks, I was in what Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, the, the book, the author who wrote Flow, the book, 
I was in the flow state. And it was in that moment that I knew that coaching, as we all know it today, was my life's purpose. And so I had seen around that same time, I had seen a this, I, this method or this model, you know, saying you can always unlock someone's potential. And for some reason, that simple phrase just came to me at that exact same point in time. And I realized that my life's mission was going to be unlocking potential. But I couldn't, I couldn't do, I didn't know how, right? I knew the why, but I didn't know how. And so after I finished the degree, I went to work for a very large healthcare system, right? Because that's what people do after they get the master's degree and they've got a lot of debt. So here I am making six figures, had the girl, had the car, had all that stuff, but I was devoid of meaning in my life, right? Working six days a week to make someone else rich. And that was just not valuable for me. So the reason I say all of that to say is that in October of 2011, I decided to launch my business. And when it started, it was resume writing. And then a couple of years later, I became certified to deliver the disc. And so then it was communications training. And a couple of years later, I learned how to define personal brands. And about a year after that, I became an executive coach because I had some requests for it. And then I did organizational change consulting in 2018, 2019. And in 2020, I spent time writing a book. And in 2021, I spent an awful lot of time leading something called You and I Know Circles, which is kind of circles based on the content that exists inside the book. Thank you so much for joining me and my guest, Michael Seaver, here for this first half of our conversation. Make sure you come back for the second part, which is going to be dropping in just another week, of course, depending on when you're listening to this. And if you want to learn more about Michael and his good work, uh, there are links in the notes for today's show, the intro for today's show. So go check them out and do visit him on the socials, his website, etc. And, of course, a reminder to come by my website. You can get there via KenMossman.com or Cirrus is in the cloud, CirrusLeadership.com. Both will get you there. Check out my classes page, registration, early registration, by the way, including savings and some cool bonuses, is open for my IM program beginning the 7th of September. Um, that is the flagship men's program that I run a couple of times a year. Would love to see you there. And this is a great time to take advantage of those savings. And of course, there's a lot more on the website to check out as well, including every episode of Mojo for the Modern Man to date. Special shout out to my sound editor, Josh Hines, musician extraordinaire for his help with getting the sound right and edited, etc. And also to Carly Farrar and Megan Johnson at Knack and Company. Thanks for having my back. And with that, thanks so much for joining me, Ken Mossman, here on Mojo for the Modern Man, and we'll see you back soon. Take care and be well.